how do we learn to pray? Um, some of us might have grown up, as I said, in a Christian home. Others, others of us might have grown up in a home where no one was a Christian. Um, and you would have heard a prayer later on in life, perhaps, or some intermittent times in life. Um, and then you came into the church and you would have he heard prayers and they would have sound maybe impressive. And um, you kind of slowly figure out how to pray by picking it up from other people. Maybe you remember the first time you prayed out loud in a group of people. Public speaking, um, let alone praying to God out loud, can be nerve-wracking, can't it? Maybe. Maybe thought you needed to use all sorts of big Christian words in your praying. Do you think that? And sort of put them together in an in a impressive-sounding way. So how do we learn to pray? Um, I really think prayer has fallen on, a hard, on hard times as, as, as a church. I'm not alone in this observation. I think Christians are praying less. Prayer is something we're meant to do as individuals, yes. And so we sort of farmed out praying to individuals. But I think corporate prayer has fallen on hard times. There's a focus on the doing side of Christian ministry, on the, you know, on vision statements and ministries and programs, which we have, by the way, which are good. Um, the doing stuff. But we can forget that a huge part of Christian mission is actually praying, praying together. Why? Because prayer is speaking to God and asking only, asking God for what he can only do. Um, so prayerlessness is really a symptom of perhaps we're not really walking with God as closely as we should, as he wants us to. We're not communing with God very much at all. It's, but prayer is meant to be this engine room, right, of, of the Christian life and of the church. So we're looking at prayer today. Um, how do we learn to pray? I want to say really the best way to learn to pray is to learn from God. Yeah? The best way to learn to pray is to learn from his word. Paul writes down his prayer here in these verses. This is, this is God, a God-inspired prayer and God wants us to learn from it. To learn the way to approach God, to learn the language of prayer, to learn praising God in prayer. For God's done so much for us in the Lord Jesus, right? And we have this amazing privilege of being able to pray to him. So I've got three points today. And by his, God's providence, they all start with P. So that's fantastic. It just happened. Um, our posture towards God, our prayers to God, and our praise of God. Um, so posture, prayers, and praise. So my back aches sometimes. Do you have any aches and pains in your body? I hurt my back um, about 10 years ago when I was lifting a lawnmower out of a ute. Um, when I was at college, we had, we had all sorts of war wounds. Um, my fellow students would talk about the aches and pains that came of them from sitting at a desk all the time. Um, my friend even had a wrist brace for RSI from typing. So there are war wounds at Theological College. Uh, but one of our friends, one of the students was a chiropractor, so that was really useful, wasn't it? Um, he showed me the right technique how to walk properly, so that was really great. It's very useful. And so first, our first point here is our posture towards God. As we approach him in prayer, it's our posture. 
So verse 14, for this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom every family on heaven and on earth derives its name. So Paul here picks up where he left off in chapter 3, verse 1, actually. So last week was that diversion. So Paul picks up from where he's left off. Um, for this reason. Well, what's the reason? Well, the reason's at the end of chapter 2. That God himself is building his church, his temple, a dwelling place in which God lives by the Spirit. All of us who are trust in Jesus, no matter who we are, what age we are, or where we've come from, we're all part of God's church, his temple. And so for this reason, that reason, Paul kneels before the Father in prayer. Um, so the first thing we need to see is as Christians, we have a Father. That's what we need to notice here. We have a Father, a Father in heaven. Verse 15 says that every family in heaven and on earth derives its name from him. And Paul's point here surely is that every Christian family, either those in heaven who have, who have died and gone to be with the Lord, or those on earth, that's us, we're part of the one larger family with God our Father, as our Father. We have a Father, a Father who loves us and names us as his children. What an honour this is, what great love this is, that we get to come to the Father, our Father in prayer. That God's not distant from us. He's there listening to us. He's not an absent father figure. But he's there with us. He's there as we doubt and struggle and as we try to figure out things. He's always there loving, caring and looking after us. So Paul kneels before the Father. Now secondly, doesn't his posture here show us something about our approach to God? What does he do? What does he do? He actually kneels. Paul is reverent. Paul is humble. In other words, we don't come to the Father in kind of a blasé way. We show respect to our Father. Why? Because of who he is, what he's done for us in Christ, in his grace. Our posture before God shows our dependence on God. And we can only come to God because of grace, right? So our posture shows our respect for God. I think it's often the case that we want other people to bow before us rather than us bowing before God. Isn't it the case with our lives that we want our will be done uh, rather than Christ's will be done? We want others to bend the knee before us. But the gospel, you see, flips that on its head. Becoming a Christian means that we lay down our, our arms, our weapons, our, our cannons against God. For, because we bow to God. Bowing to God is the central battle of our hearts, isn't it? The war which is waged in us as we follow Jesus. Sin attempts to dethrone God off the throne of the universe. But no, the Christian life is bowing before him. So we come to the Father by grace. We join the family of God. We're his children. We have a Father in heaven. And to bow to him, to submit to him, it's not a hardship, you see. It's not hard, but it's a joy. It's a privilege. It's an honour. So, but it's interesting, isn't it, to look at the physical posture of prayer. Have you ever thought of that? People actually did things with their bodies when they pray. You know, people stood in the Bible, uh, they, they stood to pray. 
Um, some people bow the head to pray. Other people kneel. Now, our posture, out, whether physical, the actual physical act, or in the heart, which is really most important, it shows our attitude towards God. Physical posture can actually help in praying. Um, it, it can be a helpful way of training us, training our, our hearts, our bodies, uh, to, to come to God. Be humbling, to be humble before him, to honour, to respect him, it can be helpful to actually maybe even kneel before God. So, right, so kids, when we pray together, when we pray together, kids, sometimes grown-ups will ask you to shut your eyes. Do you know that? Do grown-ups ask you to shut your eyes? Maybe even to fold your hands. Sometimes it's helpful to do that. And bow your heads so you're tempted not to fidget around and all that sort of thing. And these sorts of things help us to pray to God. They help us to pray. And here at church, whether we have a physical posture or not, it's our, our heart attitude towards God. Our, our prayers here should have this reverence of coming before God, kneeling as it was before our Father. Prayer, praying shouldn't be a light thing we do. But we come to him with reverence and respect, but also knowing that he's a loving and gracious father. So both of those things, love and respect, honour and trust, that's our posture. Now that's the first point. Um, we'll move on to the second point. And the second point is the content of the prayers, our prayers to God. We need to learn what kinds of things we should pray about. Are there certain words that we should use? Are there some things that are good to pray about and some things that are not good to pray about? Let's have a think about these things. Paul shows us here what we should be praying for as Christians. Paul is praying to God for three things. Three, actually three things are his three prayer points here. So let me read from verse 16. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you being rooted and established in love, I'm going to stop there because we'll get too far in. So that's the first prayer point. That's the first prayer point. What's Paul doing? He's bowing before the Father and he's asking firstly for God to give these Ephesian Christians strength. He's asking for strength. He's praying for strengthening with God's power through the Spirit. Why, verse 17, that Christ may dwell in their hearts through faith. He's praying that God would strengthen Christians so that Jesus might live in them. He's praying for strengthening. So, kids, if you trust in Jesus, if you trust Jesus as your King and Saviour, then guess what? Jesus lives in you. Do you know that? Jesus lives in you. You do? Awesome. Jesus is actually living you by the Holy Spirit. And that's what Paul is praying about here. He's praying for strength and power because Jesus is living in us. And if you think about it, Jesus living in us takes an almighty act of God's power. Why? Because God himself lives in you. It's pretty crazy. We're weak. We're frail, sinful people. 
rebellious and lethargic towards God. But the king of the universe comes to live in us. And this is no small thing. And it takes the Holy Spirit strengthening, actually, for that to happen. To make our inner lives a fitting place for the king of the universe to live. It takes an act of God's power. When we bought this house, it was a bit of a fixer-upper. It's still a little bit of a fixer-upper. There was this ancient kitchen in there. You should have seen it. Ancient. 50 years old. It was definitely in need of replacing. It was very, very, very dirty. And there were some really old wardrobes and there was this timber on the wall there. Timber laminate. And underneath the timber laminate, there was some crusty old wallpaper. And we had a fireplace there, which actually leaked from the ceiling. And would, when it rained, it would leak onto the fireplace. And it was rusty. Uh, but as time goes on, year after year, we do a little bit here and there, and the house becomes a little bit more suitable for us and our needs. It's being shaped um, into a great place to live. When Jesus, friends, moves into us by the Holy Spirit, he, he actually gets to start gets started on the renovations. He moves into a bit of a crusty old home. Uh, there's rubbish in the backyard, and the walls definitely need painting. And he gets about renovating. He gets changing us. Gets the work changing us. Working. The Holy Spirit works his power in us. Because there's a lot of work to be done. And Jesus by the Spirit lives in us and changes us. Changes us. The big word for this is called sanctification. Alright, I reckon everyone can say the word sanctification. One, two, three. three. Sanctification. Yes, well done. Sanctification. It's the lifelong process of taking the crusty old house of us, uh, making it a fitting place for Jesus to live, getting rid of the rubbish and dirt, our sin, our uncleanness, our unholiness, and making us nice and radiant, clean and holy. So that's Paul's first prayer point for strengthening. Now, seconds, this, uh, his second prayer point here is for understanding, verse 18. Uh, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge. Paul wants us to understand the measurements of God's love, the width, the length, the height, the depth. Where do we see God's love? Where do we see God's love? We see God's love in all sorts of different ways in our lives. But it isn't the things that God does for us, like giving us food on the table and um, friends, the things to wear, um, even love in our community towards each other. They're only sort of, only part of the measurement of God's love. Where do we see God's love most clearly? We see it in Jesus, as he says here. The love of Christ is the greatest love. As verse 19 says, it actually exceeds our understanding. I'm going to get something for a minute. Yeah. All right, I've got a measuring tape. How big do you reckon God's love is? Um, this measuring tape goes for, whoa, eight meters. That's pretty big. It's taller than you, Ned, definitely. But God's love can't be measured. Do you know that? 
God's love can't be measured. It's bigger and longer and stronger and wider and deeper and higher. So and wider, so deep, big and long and wide that we can't actually measure it. The love of Christ has enormous dimensions that far exceeds everything we can measure. And we see it in Jesus, that he would come and live in this world, taking on a human body, living as one of us, serving, loving us, loving God and others, suffering and dying for us. And in his great love, taking the punishment for our sins in our place. That's the measure of God's love. We can't measure it. And so Paul's third and final prayer point at the end of verse 19 is that he prays that they would be filled to the measure of the fullness of God. That's the third prayer point. You know, when you pour water into a glass, I've got props everywhere here today. Um, Water into a glass, you can fill it right to the top. Have you ever done that? Filled a cup right to the top and it sort of goes over like that. You've done it in a cup. Awesome. And we have a saying for that. It's full to the brim. Full to the brim. That's kind of what Paul is saying here in verse 19. Paul is praying that they'd be full to the brim with the fullness of God. That God's church, his temple, would be full to the brim with God's glorious presence through the Spirit. He's saying, he's praying that God would pour out his glory into the church in full measure. They'd be filled with the Spirit. That's what Paul's praying for strengthening, for understanding and fulfilling those three prayer points. So what should we be praying for in our prayers? What should we be praying? What should our prayers be look, uh, prayers look like? Sometimes it's hard to know what to pray. Sometimes we don't have the words to pray, and in those moments, the Spirit prays for us. Sometimes our prayers are things that are happening right here in front of us right now, sort of prayers. Uh, our needs, our daily bread sort of prayers the things we, we are most pressing for us right at that moment. Um, this is often to do with our, uh, our worries and our, our health and you know, getting along with the boss at work sort of thing. They're all good things to pray for. But I think what we, when we look at Paul's pray, prayer points here, he's really focusing on the Christian's relationship with God. That's often the shape of the prayers you see in the Bible. It's, it's Godward. It's our attitude towards God. The focus is often towards God, God glorifying, lifting up who God is, wanting to know God more, praising God for what he's done and who he is. So I was reading, I've been reading recently about the reformers. Um, people reformed the church many hundreds of years ago uh, about their order of services. So I'm thinking about how we can order our services here. So I was reading this morning about the reformer John Knox, in, um, who was in Geneva and in, in, in Scotland. And he wrote a great deal about prayer, actually, and what we should pray. Um, prayer is not, he says, prayer is not a matter of human creativity. It's not about being creative and coming up with stuff, but of speaking to God in his own words. Prayer is to be biblical. That's what he taught and he's right. We're to pray God's word to God. The prayer, prayer, praying should be informed by Scripture. So if we want to know how to pray, if we want to learn praying, I reckon the best place to go 
is the Bible. Why not pick up a psalm? The psalms are just a book of prayers and songs. Fantastic. Or turn to one of Jesus' parables in the Gospels and pray God's word back to him. Take the points of the passage and, and, and turn them to prayer. Back to God. And it also have the bonus of stopping us praying for things which are unfaithful, sort of selfish prayers. Um, so we have to have this Godward focus in our prayers. That's what we see in these, these petitions that Paul has here. Our pressing, our pressing need, our most pressing need, is to be filled to the brim with God, to praise him for Jesus, to acknowledge his love for us in Christ. We need to know God, and that's what we should be praying for. That's our second point. So our third point is this wonderful uh, point of praise at the end here. We're to praise God from verse 20 to 21. Paul is wrapping up really the first part of this book of Ephesians, this letter of Ephesians. He's wrapping up the first three chapters before he moves into the practical outworkings, the implications, the parts which everyone loves, you know, the practical bits. Yeah. In our house, it's not uncommon for people to burst into song, uh, songs about all sorts of things. Ned's great at singing songs, aren't you, Ned? Yeah. So often they're new words to tunes of Disney classics. Paul here has finished his praying and he bursts into a God-praising song. This is good, right? Bursting into song. Let's have a look. Verse 20. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Paul moves from prayer to praise. What does he say? Well, the God is able to do immeasurably more than we know or can think about or even imagine or ask. But this alone isn't good news, right? Being able to do something isn't actually the same as putting it into practice. For instance, I might be able to put the washing on the line. I have the potential <laughs> to put the washing on the line, the ability to do so, but it's entirely another thing to actually do it, putting it into practice. But the good news is that Paul has been showing us how God's put it into practice. God is able and he's powerful and he has worked his power for us. He is able and he does work his power in those who believe. So verse 21, to him be the be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Paul is saying here that God's glory can be seen in the church and in Jesus. Really interesting, isn't it? What's glory? Well, it means weightiness, heaviness, weightiness. It's God's radiant presence. You see it in the temple in the Old Testament. God's presence filled the temple. God's glory. And so God's glory is seen in Christ Jesus, as Paul says here. Why? Because Jesus is God. He's God in the flesh. He's the God-man. And God's glory filled Christ, like I feel the Old Testament temple, because Jesus is the true temple. Jesus radiates God's glory. So, Paul, but also Paul says here that God's glory is seen in the church. Now, the church might not look very glorious to you. you know, it's made up of me and you, after all. But no, Paul says that God's glory is shown in us. 
God's radiant presence is on full display. Why? Because God dwells with us, as he says, by the Spirit. God lives in us. If you think about it, the church, which God has filled, the church, little churches like us, are pockets of glory. We're little pockets of God's glory. We show, we reflect out, we shine out what God is like in his goodness, his love, his holiness, his mercy. We show it to the world. Yes, we do mess up and sin. We argue and lethargic about the gospel. But if God is in us, if God has dwelled in us by his spirit, then, then his glory will shine. And don't we look forward to the time when his glory will cover the whole world, when sin is no more and we see him face to face. We're little pockets of God's glory. Now as we await that time. So friends, God's glory matters. We're here to glorify God. That's why we're here. To do all things for God, to reflect his character to the world. So when we think about the church, it's not in the same category. Well, the government might categorise us this way, but we're not in the same category as a welfare organisation or a community group. We're not even a human institution, first of all. We're God's temple, not the Rotary Club. We're not an interest group. No, the church is where God's glory is shining. We're here to shine out the brilliance of God. We come together as a church to encounter God. The church is created by God, by his word, by his spirit. It's God achieved. It's made up of people he has saved in the Lord Jesus and is indwelling by the spirit. It's where his glory is. So as we reflect on who God is and what he's like, as we pray, approach God in prayer, as we pray to him, God-shaped Godward prayers, this should lead us, as Paul does here, to, to praise. Prayer and praise go together. Like a hand in a glove. Prayer and praise. Praising God in our prayers for who he is, what he's like, and what he's done. Prayer and praise. So we've seen our posture towards God, our, the way we approach him. is to be in humble um, dependence and trust and love we've seen our prayers to god that they're to be god focused and toward god and our relationship with him for this is our biggest and highest need and we've seen that our prayers lead us to praise for god is powerful and has chosen to show his glory through us so there's a lot more to learn about prayer but that's a start uh, it's good to learn to pray and I'm actually going to do that right now. So let me pray.